to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some friends from Philadelphia come together and talk about all things movies. We are continuing our theme of troubled productions, and I am joined today by Sam, Dave, and Christine. How is the Butter Crew doing today? Hanging in. It's still hot for no reason. I'm tired of it. Enough. That's all. It is. It, today was just unbearably Hot. The day of this recording, I, I Dave, uh, we were chatting outside for a while, and I could feel sweat rolling down my back. <laughs> Unreasonably hot out for mid-September. But I guess this is the new future that we're living in. It will only continue to get hotter. I think our friend Josh said that this is the coolest summer that we'll ever have. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. <laughs> Speaking of things that are like really depressing and heartbreaking, um, yesterday, Norm MacDonald died. Yeah, as of this recording, yeah. Yeah, so that was really upsetting. Um, one of our mutual friends has been really um, caught up about it, and I just keep getting articles sent to me about Norm MacDonald and recommendations of stand-up and things to watch, so... Um, yeah, definitely, um, a big loss. He was great. Yeah. Yeah. In the world of, you know, comedy and so many other things, that's a a huge loss for American culture. Christine, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I, I'm doing well. Can I tell you about something I've been watching? Of course. That's my Uh, favorite part. So, um, I've just been watching, uh, season three of what we do in the shadows and of course, it's amazing because it just keeps getting better. Um, I'm not going to give any spoilies for folks that might be catching up or just encountering the show. It's it's wonderful. It's everything I've dreamed of. And it's ushering me into fall and into kind of the spooky season. It's like a perfect uh, show to to walk me into the month of October. That's been a show and a movie that I've been really wanting to watch and get into, but just haven't made the time for it yet. The thing is, is once you make the time, like once you watch the movie, then you're like, oh, obviously I need to watch the Like it might be, you might need to devote two days to really just sitting down and watching all of it that exists so far. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, Sam or Dave, have you guys been watching anything? I know we've all been pretty busy so i don't personally really have much to report on watching wise but how about you two my brain is turned to soup uh, because of <laughs> all of what's going on last week as you may have heard uh, that was a lot um so i yeah i've been pretty stuck on a bad movie for a while which has been unfortunate but um i did also start watching um as of this recording it just premiered this week why the last man uh on hulu which is an adaptation of uh, like a a series adaptation of a comic series that came out. I want to say that was like uh, mid 2000s and continued for several years. Really, really interesting comic series. One of the few that I actually followed for like several volumes and a really awesome series so far. The premise of which is that without, without spoiling anything is that basically all of the, all, all mammals on earth with a, an X chromosome die, uh, which leaves one man, interestingly enough. And, um, basically uh, just women sort of trying to make sense of a collapsing world uh, and doing it of their own accord and their own direction, which makes for a very interesting television series so far. I mean, the 
the comic book is a little bit more dense in that sense and is a little bit more focused on the male character, I guess, in that scenario, which is a little bit weird. But um, still a great comic series and so far a really good TV series. They have, as of now, I think four episodes up by the time that this is released. So definitely uh, worth a worth a glance. Nice. I'm glad to hear that that came out because I know it's been in the show has been in there was a movie that got canceled and the show's I think been in production for a number of years. So cool that it's finally getting out there. Yeah. All I have to say to that is good for us. <laughs> um, I haven't been watching anything. I have been too busy, but because I've been busy doing stuff, I am able to like listen to things as I'm doing it. So I've been really digging some podcasts lately. I sometimes even, you know, even though I co-host a podcast, I stopped listening to podcasts for a little bit. I just like need a little bit of a break. So it's nice to dive back into some of my favorites. And I just listened to a, oh God, was it a three or four part series on Billy the Kid? Very, very interesting. I didn't know literally anything about Billy the Kid other than his name was Billy and he was possibly a kid at one point. So I've learned a lot. Statistically, he was a kid, I, I hope. You're right. And you know what? He never really made it to adulthood. Yeah, I know the know. series you're talking about. It sounds it sounds up my alley. I'm going to check that out soon. You should. Also, Sam, if you've not heard um, a podcast called I Hate It, But I Love It, really, really great podcast that takes a look at like several different films that are um that divisive for lack of a better word uh but hosted by uh two really hilarious ladies that uh put on a great show so i'd recommend it okay thank you i might check that out you know speaking of podcasts we are part of a wonderful podcast network called movie john uh we've been with them for a little bit now there are many wonderful shows including uh tori who used to be part of butter with that her podcast called killer bees with her partner garrett going into B-Movie Stars is a really wonderful show. And so we definitely recommend checking out all the shows that are on Movie John, wherever you find podcasts. And most likely wherever you listen to Butter With That, you can find all of the Movie John podcasts as well. Well, without further ado, let's dive into movie number two for our Troubled Productions theme. I was really excited by this idea. This is sort of started by Dave's pick of uh, Don's Plum which I hope uh-huh. that you listened to last week. And so I've been really enjoying how we've been sort of picking movies we want to talk about, building themes around it. And as we were sort of thinking about you know, Hollywood disasters or troubled productions as this theme was taking shape, a film that kind of kept coming to mind for me was Jaws, the film that we are talking about today. You know, what can we say about Jaws? I feel like we can say, you know, it speaks for itself and we can also probably talk about it for five hours <laughs> or longer. So I was really excited to sort of dive into the production history of Jaws and why I love this movie and what really works about this movie all of these decades later. Um, and I just think this was just would be really fun to talk about. But before we get started, for those who have not heard of Jaws, I have this fun little description on the back of this really cool Blu-ray that I got from Walmart, which includes a little booklet inside of it with some, you know, uh, foreign posters, storyboards, some fun facts. And so here is the brief description for Jaws. If you have managed to never hear of one of the most famous movies in American cinema. Directed by Academy Award winner Steven Spielberg, Jaws is the set the standard for edge of your seat suspense, quickly, quickly becoming a cultural phenomenon and forever changing the movie industry. When the seaside community of Amity 
finds itself under attack by a dangerous great white shark, the town's chief of police, Roy Scheider, a young marine biologist, Richard Dreyfus, and a grizzled shark hunter, Robert Shaw, embark on a desperate quest to destroy the beast before it strikes again. Featuring an unforgettable score that evokes pure terror, Jaws remains one of the most influential and gripping adventures in motion picture history. I thought about trying to type something up myself, but that seems to sum up what Jaws is pretty succinctly it was released on june 20th 1975 already mentioned uh directed by steven spielberg this was one of his earliest films and what made spielberg a breakout star and set him on the path to being one of the most notable directors and filmmakers of all time the screenplay was by peter benchley and carl um Lotlieb, uh, Lotlieb, uh with assistance from many others there are many cooks in the kitchen with the script for jaws uh peter benchley also wrote the novel jaws which in 1973 the rights for the screenplay were bought up and so part of this contract was that he would get a first stab at the screenplay uh the cinematographer was Bill Butler, who also was a cinematographer for another 1975 classic, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And oh. Bill Butler actually turned 100 this April, April 2021. So still alive and kicking um, and an influential cinematographer. And of course, music by the legendary John Williams. And this is actually his second Spielberg film. And he credits Jaws with really kickstarting his career. Already mentioned the cast already. Roy Scheider is Chief Martin Brody, Robert Shaw's Quint, uh, Richard Dreyfus is Matt Hopper, Hooper, and uh, Lorraine Gray plays Ellen Brody, uh, Roy Scheider's wife, and Murray Hamilton plays Mayor Larry Vaughn, who I definitely have a lot to say about. Uh, Jaws had, when it was all said and done, a budget of $9 million and grossed a global total of $472 million, which in 1975 was literally unheard of. 67 million people went to see Jaws during its initial run in 1975, and Jaws only premiered on just over 400 screens in the summer of 1975. So cultural phenomenon is really an understatement. Jaws is also credited with the birth of the modern blockbuster and specifically the summer blockbuster. I'll go into this with the legacy of Jaws later, but before 1975, summer was really where terrible movies were sent to try to make as much cash as possible uh, before the bad reviews came out. So Jaws really changed the way that, you know, production works, filmmaking, and also the way that movies are released as well. So a really watershed moment in American cinema. Jaws won three Academy Awards, Best Editing, Best Dramatic Score, and Best Sound. It was also nominated for Best Picture, but lost to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So 1975 was a great year for cinematographer Bill Butler. Now, before we go any further, is it safe to assume that everybody... You know, everybody before recording has seen Jaws at least once. Many times, yeah. Many times, getting some nods, getting some nods, great. So it's awesome that we're all returning to this movie. Jaws is a film I try to watch every year or so. Uh, I try to watch it around 4th of July. just feels particularly apropos, given that the film is set in the 4th and it's very beach summer-themed movie. So, you know, before I kind of get into my notes and some of the themes and ideas that I want to talk about, what is your guys' relationship with Jaws and how do you, you know, as a kid or over the past couple of years feel about Jaws and kind of feel about the film going into this rewatch? 
Um, I feel pretty neutral about it. Um, for a very long time, the only way I knew Jaws was a movie was because <laughs> on the screen VHS, there was a little clip about like some kind of anniversary edition. I, I can't remember what it was, but it would just be like the very beginning part of the two people at the beach. Yeah, I suppose for me, Jaws goes way back. Uh, my dad is a huge fan of the film, saw it in theaters when it came out. For the longest time, I it, it kind of established a family tradition as far as the beach was concerned for, for the Sampsons. Every time that we would go, as a child, I remember my dad, uh, you know, excitedly, uh, like picking me up, scooping me up under my arms and wading out into the ocean with me held in front of him, just sort of like breaking the waves and like, wow, like, you know, really experiencing this with my dad. This is really great. Uh, it wasn't until years later that I discovered that this movie implanted a deep rooted fear of the ocean and sharks in him. So as he tells it, he was way, he was holding me out as something of a barrier when going out into the ocean. So that's amazing. Wow. <laughs> you as a baby as shark bait. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's the, I mean, yeah, I guess the movie obviously made quite an impact on the old man and really stuck with him over a long time. Uh, for me personally, I would watch it as a kid and had an appreciation for it, but it only really blossomed into a true adoration and like love of the film when I got to be like a teenager. I haven't seen this movie, I don't think in like five years or so. It's really been a long time. So sitting down to watch it for this podcast uh, just the other day was totally riveting. I fell in love with it all over again and really, really adore it a little bit more every time that I see it. It's like understated humor for its depth of character, for the tenderness that it has for such a weird, like, pseudo-monster movie at times. So, yeah, across the board, uh, I mean, two thumbs up. You really, you can't do much better with Spielberg unless you're going to watch, like, Schindler's List or Jurassic Park. You know, just some of the other greatest movies of all time as well. Just some of the other greatest movies ever made, yeah. Um, I I also have some, like, a childhood... memory of watching it I, I it had been a while since i'd seen it but the most recent had, i think had been on television yeah maybe like five or seven years ago but like the first time i re- remember watching it i was pretty young and my brother had turned it on and it was really cute he like would tell me when like the scary parts were coming and would be like now close your eyes now and I, thinking back, it was really sweet of him, but I'm like, you didn't do that to all the other messed up movies that I watched while you were watching. Like, why was it Jaws? Like, I remember watching like real like um, movies like Alive about the Chilean soccer team that crashed into the into the mountain, and that movie sticks with me to this day. And he didn't have me cover my eyes during all the scary parts, but for Jaws, it was a night. He gave me a nice heads up as to when body parts were going to be, you know, shown uh, sort of dismembered, bloody arms and legs and all that. So I knew, you know, I knew later on when to open my eyes and actually watch most of the movie. <laughs> How old were you when you watched the live? Oh, too young. Like that movie. <laughs> and the thing is, is I'm sure if I rewatched this movie, it would like not be that great. But like, I mean, it's probably it's it's bad for many reasons. Uh, but like, but that movie just chills me to the bone. I think because I watched it, like, yeah, as a wee wee one. I actually have a little vicarious story that I'd like to plug in at some point from a friend of mine as concerns a particular scene in Jaws and not seeing it as a kid versus seeing it ultimately as an adult. So we'll get to that too. 
Oh, that sounds awesome. In the Feeney household, Jaws was always a really important movie. Roy Scheider looks a lot like my mom's dad, my grandpa, who passed away when I was two years old. So I remember this always felt like a big like family connection moment. They were also from like a, almost the same area in New Jersey. So it was just sort of like this is always like a really, on top of being an awesome movie, was also like kind of had that extra sentimental aspect to it as well. And so I feel like as I've gotten older, this movie has only gotten richer. Dave, when we did our RoboCop episode, you said it's like watching this movie for the second time every time I revisit it. And I know that's a an idea that we brought up a few times in the past couple of months, but that's, I really felt that connection with Jaws of there's always these little details, these moments or something in the structure or some cue that I missed before that always, you know, fills me with delight. That is just something that is really you know, enjoyable and enriching to go back and watch it over and over again. And the fact that it almost was a huge and utter colossal disaster um, is there aren't too many movies that are on the precipice of total failure that then become a cinematic classic. That is an incredibly rare story. But the story of the production of Jaws, I will say for the back half of the episode, uh, instead, let's go forward with sort of our classic butter with that discussion, talking about some things we loved about the movie, some questions we have, potentially some problems as well. There are a few parts of Jaws that I also have some questions about, some parts that I do not love. But there were just a few, I have a few descriptors of what I love about Jaws that I kind of wanted to throw out there to the group. Uh, starting with the opening few minutes, tension and elements of horror, dialogue, characterization, music and sound, effects, and human connection. To me, those are sort of the embodiment of what makes most movies that are great movies great. Those elements right there. And so for me, Jaws is sort of a movie that is firing on all cylinders. Um, Dave, you brought up sort of the characters, the deep characterization. That for me is a huge part of this movie and something that is, as someone who's been talking about films in a podcast setting for three years, I feel like is something that I appreciate more and more uh, the longer that we do butter with that. But I just wanted to start with how the film opens, which I think is pretty great. So it opens with a first person view uh, with the Jaws music, the da Dunna, dunna, yeah, I think shark knows. vision. Yeah, shark, yeah, shark vision. Uh, but at first, we don't really know it's a shark. Um, but we, you know, learn to associate that tune with danger, with threats underwater. You know, swimming through a reef off of Amity Island. So that's sort of the cold open, and then we get to our first scene, which are teens partying on the beach. Really not a whole lot of dialogue. These you know, guys chasing this girl, they're going to go skinny dipping. He can't get his clothes off. There's a funny line. It's like, I can't undress myself. You know, kind of a little bit of comedy there. Uh, and then the girl goes into the water and she gets, we see the shark vision again, the song, and then she gets dragged under screaming and we do not see the shark. Something that is critical, that will be critical in this discussion as we break down what makes this movie work. Um, so well. And so that's just the opening right away, sort of setting up the film, setting up the central conflict. And then we cut to meet uh, Roy Scheider's uh, Martin Brody and Lorraine Gray's Ellen Brody. We learn that they are relatively new to town. They sort of make fun of the Amity accent, ka, you know, uh, khaki, you know, all the sort of, this uh, was filmed on Martha's Vineyard. So sort of this New England-y, Boston-y sort of thing. Um, they're from Manhattan, 
And so they're fear and they're, and we learned that Brody's fearful of his kids getting hurt. He's not over dramatic, but you can tell that there's a protective streak in him. And we also see that kids are out of sight sometimes that parents do not always know where their children are. And since he's the police chief, he really thinks nothing bad can happen, especially out of summer season. So this movie opens in the very early days of the summer when Amity Island is just a quiet place before the rush of tourists come uh, during the 4th of July season. So I think that this movie just sets up what we're going to see for the next two hours pretty perfectly. Also establishes, yeah, establishes uh, Scheider as someone who, um, yeah, is afraid of his family being hurt, but is also intrinsically afraid of the ocean uh, while while becoming the police chief of this island, which is really great. But what's and funny the, is that, like, you really, I feel like the police chief wouldn't be handling all that much water drama. You have, like, the Coast Guard for that. You have, like, all of these other like entities i just thought it was funny that he gets him like embroiled and and involved in the uh out at sea quest for the shark but i'm 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 jumping too far forward but it is just but i thought his job and how he gets himself in the middle of open water was kind of yeah didn't really quite connect but it is cute well, that he's afraid of water <laughs> definitely ironic in what he has to later go on to do and save yeah. the day also, just really quickly to jump back, actually, I mean, that that opening. Oh, my God. What like what a way to open your film and what a way to set a tone. I mean, first of all, this day for night shoot that they do for the ocean is really incredible, even if there's a lot of inconsistency, like at one point the sun's to the west and then the east and then the sun is up and it's also nighttime. There's a lot going on there, but it looks great. And it also just like like, man. Like you're you, everyone, everyone watching this movie is afraid of the ocean now. You're welcome. Like it's wild how impactful it must have been in 1975. The physicality and screaming of this actress is completely chilling. Like definitely a person fighting for their life. It's it's a lot right away before shifting gears and going into the more Spielbergian like family dynamic. So yeah, really, really laying bare what uh, the expectations for the audience. Like there is going to be intense implied violence and a lot of really intense and, and suspenseful and, you know, <clears throat> relatively like uh, off-screen gory moments. But it's also going to be really rooted in, you know, these characters and the, the, this family. Uh, you know, it reminds me a lot of, of Psycho, of how that surprised audiences when that premiered. Yeah. And so this um, Sam we were talking about today, the idea of like going back in time and watching this movie when it came out and how impactful it must have been. And I can't even imagine what the first five minutes of this movie would have felt like to somebody um, going to the theater in 1975. And so right away, we're, you know, Dave, I love how you brought up, we're introduced to the idea of, you know, horror and terror and Spielbergian family moments as well. And I think he does such a good job as in many of his films, balancing this idea of like dread and terror, but also these really um, intimate connections as well. And I think Brody is really a great Spielberg protagonist as this sort of outsider figure who's really just trying to do his best. And the town is just throwing everything they have at him, all of his problems, he's sort of expected to solve it all. And I never really thought about, you know, this idea when watching Jaws before, but sort of outsider versus insider. 
seemed very pre- a very prevalent theme, which is not something I've picked up before. Um, the Brodies, they are from New York City. He was a cop in New York, and they sort of moved to Amity to get away from the violent city. Brody talks a little bit about being a cop in New York and not being able to solve you know, any problems with coming to Amity. He felt like he'd be able to be the one person who can make a change, which I think says everything we need to know also about Brody. And then there's lines where they're talking to people who live on the island. And then his wife is, you know, Mrs. Brody is sort of like, oh, can we ever be, you know, islanders? Like, no, you got to be born on the island to be an islander. So in the beginning of the movie, we see all of these divisions in the community and Brody really trying to be the one to piece it all together, competing with the public, competing with the mayor and the city council, the fathers of the town, I think they referred to. And then all while there's this existential threat of the shark coming in. I really love the production design of this movie uh, filmed on Martha's Vineyard um, off of Cape Cod. And they chose Martha's Vineyard because for 12 miles out, the sand, the water doesn't get deeper than 35 feet. So they were able to attach platforms to the bottom when they were filming shark scenes out in the open ocean. And you can get miles out with still having shallow depth and not seeing any land around you, which uh, was an effect Spielberg really wanted to capitalize on. But getting a little bit ahead of myself. I wanted to hear what you guys sort of thought of Amity, of the town, and of Mayor Larry Vaughn, who plays a really prominent role in the first half of the movie. I just wanted to touch on, you mentioned the scene or a lot of early scenes build tension really well. And I think that it's, it's this balance of tension and release that I think is really done well, where it's like, once we're introduced to the shark, we don't see it, but as Dave said, it's implied violence. You know, this woman is brutally eaten uh, in the opening scene of the movie. And even, so when her, even when her remains are discovered, we don't get a good look. It's it's interesting that part of the production was they made a fake arm, a severed arm that looked too fake. So they shot it the way they did, just implying with, a body. Right, with the crabs crawling all mm-hmm. over it. That was really, really effective. Um, and apparently that was a, a, I think a crew member's arm Oh, one of the women who was working on the film and they buried her in sand, partially in sand and put crabs and seaweed over her. So that was like a real hand apparently. Well, yeah. So it, it sets, it's already sets the tone of dread and then the entire parade scene. Uh, I think Spielberg captures crowds so well, you have nice glimpses of the townspeople. They're all getting ready for this uh, 4th of July parade and the season, you know, the season's opening them up, opening up. And they're constantly moments, uh, some un- even unrelated to the shark, but moments of, of like near misses that, that happen to like build up this momentum of tension. And then once we get to the beach, all of these false alarms is, is it the shark? Is it not? And like, he just does a wonderful series of, of sort of fake outs and building tension and then you realize it's not the shark and this wonderful release, but then he bill, he ramps it up again. And it's a, you know, it's a formula that we see in a lot of horror movies, but I think he does it. He weaves it so that it's not always focused on the shark. He does like, it's not always focused on the shark when he's filming crowds, like the street crowds, the beach crowds that creates a, to me, created a sense of dread because I was sort of like feeling overwhelmed by so many people he creates a great yeah tone and sense of over like overwhelming the viewer with a lot of sounds and people uh that i think builds tension really well as well yeah it's a movie that's kind of constantly flooding you with distracted expectation which is 
really smart. Something that I like, and Connor, we had talked about this earlier today, is that I feel like there's protagonists, but there's no true antagonist. Like, I know that that sounds strange because, like, clearly the shark is supposed to be an antagonist. But I think that there are also perspectives where you could just be like, he's just a shark doing shark things. He's, like, literally living his life out there. Um, So thinking about it from that perspective was something I hadn't really done before. And I enjoyed kind of thinking along those lines. Um, Connor, you even mentioned something today where you were seeing other characters through a different light too, that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. I think that's a really great transition. You know, my notes here, um, the mayor was sort of a character that changed a lot for me. Um, even during this COVID era that we've been living in for you know, what feels like forever. I remember, you know, March, April, May of 2020, when the virus was sort of first hitting, pandemic was first kicking off. I saw a lot of memes um, of the Jawsmer saying, oh, we're going to keep the beach open. It's not, you know, it's, oh, it's not a shark. It was just something, you know, like coming up with all these excuses, just keep the beach open. And I remember feeling like, oh, that's, you know, the mayor always kind of feels like a cowardly character. He says, those beaches will be open for the weekend. Like he, I think it's interesting how he sort of starts as an antagonist, but in classic Spielberg fashion, he also gets an incredibly human moment when he realizes that his kid was in the water when the shark attacks much later in the movie. But as sort of COVID has gone on and we see the effects that the pandemic has had on small communities and touristy areas, I really do feel like that the mayor had his community's best interest at heart, but sort of starts as him just maybe a little greed or wanting to, you know, deny the truth, propose alternative facts, such as uh, Chrissy Watkins being killed in a boating accident uh, and having the medical examiner change his word, even though he said it was a shark attack at the beginning. So really, you know, not wanting the town to suffer. Um, Robert Shaw's Quint has a line later in the film, in an iconic scene where he says, you know, you can ante up now and pay me the $10,000 to hunt the shark, or you can be on welfare all winter, um, which is something that I think a lot of us experienced, you know, I, me personally, sort of for the first time over COVID. And so I feel like the mayor, I feel like I've had such like a kind of wild roller coaster ride with sort of thinking about this character and appreciating this character and some more nuances that I don't know if Spielberg necessarily intended, but I think his strength as a filmmaker is giving characters moments, even smaller characters, and leaving some things up to the imagination. So what are your guys' sort of thoughts on the mayor and... Have, did, did this sort of cross any of your minds, seeing clips from this film or kind of this scenario over the past almost two years? I mean, my mind immediately goes to DeSantis, uh, I suppose. But um, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I agree with Sam. I don't think there is a clear antagonist in this movie because that's not what it's about. This is sort of like a classical structure of character versus nature in a way. Um, and I think it executes that really well while also drawing your eye to other criticisms of characters without making them irredeemable, which is interesting. It does feel very much like it is a community versus a force, even though parts of that community are flawed. And I think what's so great about this idea of like expansion and, you know, expanding and contrasting is that it feels like we're really focused on Brody at first and it slowly builds out as more people find out about the shark attack to where the whole island is kind of turning against Brody. Not every single, sorry if you could hear my dogs running. Um, Not, you know, every citizen is against Brody, but generally the town, you know, this is their livelihood. They don't want the beaches 
shut down. Fourth of July weekend will, you know, pay for their entire like living for the next year. And so it kind of builds and builds and builds to a crescendo until there's this amazing scene on the beach where Brody is, you know, keeping an eye on things. There's a lot of tensions and fake outs. Dog, the dog goes missing, you know, sharks, you know, you know that it's building to something. And then there's just scenes of pure chaos as people are running out of the water, as people are being trampled, people need CPR. And it's just, you see the town just kind of implode on itself and everyone eventually sort of rallying behind Brody and the team that he forms with Hooper and Quinn. So I just think it's a really interesting building, 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 start small builds. And then for the last third of the movie kind of focuses on really just three characters. And Christine, as you noted, so many like furtive and like, impactful opportunities for fake outs like even in that scene like we're we're focused on the dog we're focused on uh, like an elderly woman who's floating we're focused on a couple we're focused on a kid in the raft all with equal suspense because we're not really sure who's gonna get hit but we know it's coming which is you know spielbergian magic honestly and then it's cuts it's just cuts to beach loungers like it just it, it the, the cuts are quick too and it, it creates this disorienting edge and feeling to not want to be on a crowded beach just generally <laughs> in some ways like the, Spielberg almost puts unpopular opinion maybe but uh, almost puts Hitchcock to shame as far as suspense in this movie in a lot of ways and I think it's funny you brought that up because that was not necessarily Spielberg's intention um, to have this be a suspense sort of thriller. Um, sort of the original intention was, you know, not to be a by the numbers adventure movie, but to have a certain, like the big shark movie, we're going to have big mechanical sharks. We're going to have big action. People are going to get eaten. We're going to scare people, but I'm it's such a smart decision to bring Spielberg in who kind of on the fly had to come up with a lot of decisions because as I'll talk about in kind of the story of the production the sharks, the mechanical sharks they built just frequently did not work. And so he was forced to adapt and to figure out ways of how to project terror, project violence to sort of, you know, show fear without explicitly kind of showing what's happening. And it seemed like from the start, the sort of shark cam view was always a thing. Um, You know, the the, uh, Bill Butler actually developed new technology to shoot shots underwater um, with, with Hollywood cameras. So that way they could sort of get those zoomed in shots. So I think it's an incredibly clever movie an incredibly well-written movie. And once again, one that sort of seems impossible to have happened, but sort of this alchemy happened at the right place, right time with the right people. Something that Spielberg has seemed to have replicated decade after decade. I think the camera view shots are amazing, but also the mid waterline camera shots of swimmers in the water creates a really, again, disorienting perspective because, and, and almost simulates being somewhat in the water, but like almost overwhelmed by the splash of water on the camera, uh, on the camera lens. And there was a lot of that mid, mid water line where you can see some legs and then you can see, which would, I guess would be more shark view, but kind of, Maybe it's swimmer's view or like drowning swimmer's view. It's, it, yeah, it was, it was intense. So we've talked quite a bit about Brody so far, but I want to get into the sort of two other parts of this legendary Hollywood trio. Uh, Richard Dreyfus as Matt Hooper and a legendary theater actor Robert Shaw. 
uh, as Captain Quince, who's a sort of you know, famed shark hunter. This is, I think, a great example of three people with a common goal, but a very different set of skill sets. And especially between uh, Hooper and Quint, people who are very good at pushing each other's buttons and people who are have this sort of very antagonistic relationship, which also carried over into the real life filming as well between Dreyfus and Shaw. But we don't really see a whole lot. It's really Brody's story for the first third. Then Dreyfus is brought, you know, Richard Dreyfus is brought in as this um, wealthy kid. I guess he's in his 20s, late 20s. Uh, you know, kind of trust fund kid who has all this fancy equipment, fancy boats. He's from this marine biology institute on the mainland and has all this technology to think that's the way to kind of trace the shark and to help the shark while, you know, contrasting with Quint, who is this old school fisherman. We go into his hut and we see scores of um, the jaws of other sharks, like much smaller and he's boiling them. And so I just love the contrast between the three of them and sort of the different skill sets that they have and how they push each other's buttons, sometimes lift each other up, put each other down. Um, and, you know, so much groundwork, you know, two hours, you know, it's a two hour movie and it's, you know, I feel like not a very few minutes are wasted in laying the ground for character work and sort of setting up all this characterization that pays off in spades in the final third when they're on the open ocean hunting for Jaws. Yeah, the interplay between the three characters as archetypes is spot on. Um, I mean, they're all they're all relatable in their own right, I think, but, you know, with very different, yeah, backgrounds and attentions and seeing the camaraderie that emerges and the antagonism that emerges between them, but the necessity of the go- the unifying goal between these three disparate characters is really, you know, great screenwriting, period. Yeah, one, I think, you know, Quint's introduction is certainly one of the most iconic scenes <laughs> in film history. Um, the <laughs> And often parodied as well. Oh, um, so often. It's great. That nails I mean, on the chalkboard, it, it stuck with me. Like, I couldn't shake the shiver for, like, 15 minutes after that moment. I, I mean, I hate, ever, as everyone does, that sound, but mm, that was effective. So just the shark drawing that he has, that, yeah. uh, that it wasn't there when the meeting started, so you have to assume that Quint drew it? Oh, I never noticed that. Yeah, like, little silly cartoon drawing of a man inside of, you know, getting bitten by a shark. I mean, what a great, you know, literally there's this, you know, town meeting about what to do. They're going to close the beaches. Brody says, yes, this is, you know, people are dying. Kids are dying. We have to close the beaches. Mayor says, oh, actually only for 24 hours. Brody says, that's not what I agreed to. Um, There's sort of like mass hysteria and panic. Brody, a good guy, pretty mild mannered, um, does not have a commanding presence. And then, you know, Quint just drags his nails across the chalkboard, silences the whole room and, you know, gives the proposition saying, ante up, you know, I'll, you know, I'll do it. But I value my neck a lot more than $3,000, which was Miss um, Kittner, his son Alex died, you know, from the shark attack. Uh, $3,000 bounty. He says he'll do it for 10000 And so we learn right away he's not messing around, um, very serious and has a very commanding presence in the community. And he can get it done, but the price has to be right. Yeah. He values his life, which I respect. I value my neck more than that. (laughs) Uh, And Dreyfus were introduced to um, 
you know, he's coming off. He was called from the mainland. Uh, Brody, there's all this. All, it's an amazing scene, Dave. We were talking about this of, you know, when this $3,000 bounty goes out for the shark, oh every, every person who owns a boat <laughs> brings them and their 10 friends onto it to go with dynamite and tons of buckets of chum, all to go, you know, guns, harpoons, hooks, all to go hunt the shark in the water. They're all crammed right next to each other. And so Brody's like, this can't happen. Like, this is so dangerous. We have to close this. But nobody's listening to him because he's an outsider. Why would they listen to this chief of police who doesn't know their ways and, you know, isn't from their local culture? And so he asks Hooper to, oh, tell those guys to get off of that boat and not do it. And so he's like, oh, gentlemen, this police officer, he, police chief asked you to do that. And he's like, yeah, fuck off is more or less what they tell him. Um, to do that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie just the chaos at the wharf like this overloaded boat uh on the one hand this guy that's trying to bring dynamite out to catch a shark um shider just uselessly uselessly shouting that ain't safe (laughs) but getting no response and also like connor as i was saying to you earlier like the dude's just throwing meat off the boat with dogs like right next to them and they're like leaning over the boat some dudes throwing dynamite like if you drop junkie xl on top of this you've got a pretty great mad max fury road scene it really does feel like like one of those moments and it's so great and it clearly shows that though he is a figure of authority he is an outsider and isn't respected in that sense and he's also horribly understaffed it seems like there's like two police brody his, you know, another police officer, medical examiner, and a secretary. That appears to be about it for Amityville, for not Amityville, that's a whole other movie, for yeah. Amity um, Police Department. And so the he's just totally overwhelmed with, and Quint sort of showing up saying, he'll show the way, come with me. Town is rattled after, after death, after death. And so finally agree that Brody, Quint, and Hooper are going to be the team to go out and hunt the shark. It's also especially funny, just one little note about uh, Scheider as the police chief, is when he's reading about sharks, and he just says to his wife, people don't even know how old sharks are. It's <laughs> a really great line. Hundreds of years. I'm so, I'm so glad you brought up that textbook, because I, as he's flipping through it, I'm like, what textbook is this? These photographs range from, like, like etching, like, sort of, like, past etchings of sharks to just... People like uh, autopsy reports of bodies that that have been like bitten by sharks to just like aquatic photographs or like marine photographs of shark. I'm like, is this the history of the horror of sharks? Like, I I love like when I look at movie props that have clearly just been made for this very specific scene. And in no way in life would you ever encounter an actual book with each one of these images there were some random like beach like beach ball photos it was definitely trying to like set a tone but i that textbook stuck in my brain no that that for sure is a great prop all the fears that one could have while living in amity during this this this, christine as you mentioned last time a very specific moment in time uh fits that need perfectly uh before we sort of i feel like jump into the last third of the movie, The Hunt, which then leads sort of to the production notes. I really wanted to take a moment to talk about the Brody family as a really great encapsulation of Spielberg's sort of gift for human interactions. Um, while Ellen Brody doesn't have a whole lot to do in the movie, I think that there's a whole lot of tenderness that is displayed in a very short amount of screen time uh, with the Brody family and their children. Uh, in particular, a scene where 
Um, you know, shark attacks have just happened. Brody at the table, clearly internalizing everything because he doesn't want to bring it home to his young children. And his son is mimicking him as he's putting his hands up by his face, as he's sort of moving around the table, taking a drink, um, you know, and him and son make eye contact. I realize that his son's mimicking him and then asks his son for a kiss. He says, why? And says, I want to kiss, you know, something to that effect. Uh, so just lots of tender moments with this family that for what could have been just another monster movie, I think really adds to giving it a lot of heart, which some might say is emotional manipulation, maybe something Spielberg tries to do later in the 21st century. But in 1975, it feels incredibly authentic and genuine to the characters and to the themes of Jaws. Uh, it's it's It works so well because there's no swelling score behind it. It doesn't it happen after the a climactic moment. Well, okay, it happens certainly after some beginning moments of horror or, or dra- drama, but it doesn't have to happen after the like major climax of the movie. It's kind of a random moment, but makes it feel all the more real. And it's just a little glimpse into the relationship he has with his son. It is the best, most just casually touching uh, moment. And I think Spielberg is really good at those moments. I think later he milks it a little too much and he's like, oh, I'm going to like, I can bring some, some family uh, sap to this moment. But I, it works so refreshingly well here because it's, it just seems like just another day at the, at the breakfast table. And that kid is so cute too. And yeah, just that it be, it is absent of score. It's wordless. It is just sort of are coming to understand that he, Scheider, understands that as a police chief, he's got this responsibility and is appropriately stressed, but is witnessing his son mimicking his stress in a way that he's learning that as, you know, the 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 backdrop of his family, his father. Uh, and that Scheider takes the time to like then goof around and diffuse that, like that he is someone who under- appreciates the gravity of his situation, but also refuses to bring it home in a way that will impact his family negatively is, and, and doing it all wordlessly without a score, it makes it one of the best scenes in the movie. It's really something. And something that when thinking about, you know, I don't know a whole lot about the Jaws novel, but this feels like such a, a beautiful cinematic moment. And, you know, something that just reminds me of why I love movies so much is just this quiet little scene at the dinner table with the Brody family. Uh, I wish we could spend even more time talking about Jaws and every, <laughs> you know, intricate, amazing scene. But I think now's a good time to jump into the production history, which is sort of tie into, I think from there we can sort of jump into talking about the finale of the movie and the shark hunt. So I sort of, you know, doing some research, fancy little Blu-ray DVD I have, you know, the booklet, incredibly helpful. And so let's just dive right in. So Jaws is really infamous for how terrible its production was. Um, And during filming, the crew dubbed the film Flaws, uh, believing that it was going to be just... (laughs) A total flop. Uh, Spielberg was relatively unknown, as I mentioned at the time, uh, but producers David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck, who brought who bought the rights to the screenplay of the novel Jaws in 1973 for about a million dollars adjusted for inflation. So they certainly got an amazing return on their investment. 
They love Spielberg's work on the film The Sugarland Express and wanted to quote, see this film, see Jaws through fresh through the fresh eyes of someone who hasn't done this before. Otherwise, it will be just another adventure movie. So right away they wanted to pick somebody who would take this sort of adventure movie idea, monster movie idea from a different angle. Smart the script move. was yeah, incredibly smart move. The script was written and rewritten numerous times with many different writers taking a crack at various parts of it. Uh, with Jaws novel author, Peter Benchley is credited with most of the screenplay work. Um, many subplots, however, were dropped from the original novel and Benchley wanted to include romantic subplots and quote unquote mafia intrigue in the screenplay, <laughs> yeah. which is, I don't quite know what that means, but I'm that would glad. have been so rough. That was part of the book. Was the mayor was kind of in with the mob, and also that Hooper develops a relationship with uh, Scheider's wife. Yeah, uh, I don't need is, any like, of that. Romantic. Yeah, none of it's necessary. So it's wiser than to cut it. There's also apparently was some drama about you know was eventually kind of kicked off of the crew because he wanted you know fight throughout the production to include some of these scenes. Uh, one thing that and I should this at the top is also amazing about Jaws is the mythos around it. Of the studio says one thing, producers say another, and the crew says a third thing. So it's, you know, with some facts that I found, I found facts that contradict each other. So I think that just all adds to the allure of Jaws. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Howard Sackler, uh, who declined being credited in the film, was apparently instrumental in revisions. And he also came up with the idea for Quint's iconic USS Indianapolis speech. Um, this is a truly breathtaking moment in the film um, of where, you know, writers were like, oh, how do we, you know, Spielberg, Benchley, we're like, how do we, you know, we got to give Quint kind of some background. What do we do? And so um, Sackler came up with this idea. Oh, what if he was on the USS Indianapolis? And apparently Spielberg had never heard of the USS Indianapolis. 1975, not too far removed from World War II. And so the USS Indianapolis was the, the cruiser that delivered the missile, uh, the A-bomb, you know, the Hiroshima bomb. And their mission was so secret that when a submarine sunk the ship, nobody came. Nobody knew. The distress call wasn't sent. Nobody knew that this mission was happening. And so pretty vicious moment in people's lives as hundreds of people got eaten by sharks, picked off by fighter planes. And Quentin was one of the few hundred survivors of this moment of this historical event. Yeah, it's like the most shark attacks at one in one given incident in human history. It's 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 truly terrible. And I, and I think it's great that this movie sort of brought national attention to this really horrible moment, uh, this really horrible part of World War II history. And so this speech, I mean, it's there are probably 15 incredibly iconic moments in this movie in all of film history. And the USS Indianapolis speech is one of them. Production began, oh, and another kind of fun fact about this USS Indianapolis speech is that apparently one draft was 10 pages, then it was shortened a little bit, and Robert Shaw, who was a, a playwright himself, is the one who condensed it and edited it to the version that was put in the shooting script and the one that we see today. That was the one that you, know, you can see in the film. Production on Jaws began on May 2nd, or filming began on May 2nd, 1974, with a $3.5 million budget, with a 55-day shooting schedule. Uh, so that was the goal. That was what was budgeted to them. 
The target release date was Christmas time of 1974. Nine days before production began, the script still wasn't finished, major roles were still just being filled, and as Richard Dreyfus quipped, without a shark. So really, going into May 2nd, 1974, there still were a lot of pieces that were not into place yet. However, according to Spielberg, filming, for the most part, was going incredibly well. Quote, I was feeling confident for the first 35 days of shooting because I was on schedule. It was all the land stuff. Interior Brody's house, exterior Brody's house, all the land-based stuff. It was only when we went out to sea for, I guess, 25 or 30 days of photography that everything went pear-shaped. Yeah, no shit, Spielberg. Uh, Production was delayed over 100 days trying to shoot the last third of the movie. Uh, There were numerous accidents camera equipment drowning, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because I really want to chat about this part of the film, which is once again, full of incredibly iconic moments as these three men are going to hunt the shark. Um, They go out deep into the water. You can't see any land around them. And this is actually the first Hollywood feature to film on open ocean. If there was a scene with boats on the ocean in the past before not before jaws, it was in a studio tank. In Hollywood. So Spielberg and what he says his hubris as a young filmmaker didn't really care about nature, thought he could conquer any problem and wanted to strive for the realism on shooting on the open ocean. Turns out his subplot of man versus nature became a reality. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was so worth it. Like the shots, especially um, this might be jumping a little ahead, but with Quint uh, or no, I guess, uh, well, Two, two examples. Quint, uh, the bow of the boat, like sitting back, like right at the, is the bow of the front? Mm-hmm. Did I mix that up? Okay. Uh, and the sunset shots are right behind him. And you really can't recreate in a tank a sunset against open ocean. And so for all the production disasters that occurred as Spielberg was trying to film in the middle of the water, you, it, I think it just, it really brought so much realism to all those shots and really also added to kind of the, the not so much ho- the sort of dread because you, you really, it really reinforces the fact that they are just in the middle of the water, but it also looked beautiful. The second shot I thought was so cool were, were as, um, as the chief, uh, as Scheider is at the, in like the crow's nest as the boat is sinking and you just watch him slowly going into the water as the approaching shark is coming. And again, the backdrop of open, it's not in the backdrop. The real shot of the open ocean is just, it's like, it, it just works so well and looks so good. So Spielberg knows that it was well worth deciding to film in open, open water, even if it was a disaster during production. And I'll be at not planning for several hiccups along the way that I'm sure, Connor, you've got some notes on. I think that is a wonderful transition. The shark, the three mechanical sharks, were really the biggest setback for the production of Jaws. Um, some other ones included cameras actually got soaked, dropped in water. Uh, they thought they lost significant portions of the film, but realized that they developed a saline solution that, um, that saved the film back in New York. 
Yeah, that story is crazy. And I think it was I think it was the editor's son who did that, who took the plane with the solution, with the film in it to get it developed. And it turns out it was fine. Mm-hmm. Totally fine, which is a small miracle. Um, weather delays. And also, this is something, how would you not think about this? Boats drifting across the horizon. Uh, Spielberg wanted to have 360 degree view of open ocean. That was the goal. That's why they picked Martha's Vineyard. That's why they shot on the ocean. But yet, of course, you can't cordon off an entire ocean as a production team. And so they would have to wait. And I I think Waterworld also had this problem as well. Um, Numerous other films that also took advantage of the open ocean, having to wait hours just for boats to pass by. So you could so they could resume filming. Especially Uh, funny because Spielberg, when Costner was going to make Waterworld, told him, like, hey, listen, don't make this in the ocean. (laughs) So... (laughs) Uh, more hu- the more hubris of white filmmakers, white male filmmakers. <laughs> um, crew members also almost got mortally wounded. Um, Carl Lottlieb um, almost got decapitated. He was a writer by a boat, uh, by a motor. Um, and also the cast almost drowned during a malfunction of the set um, as the boat, you know, Shark Tech's boat, boat's drowning, actors almost drowned. And apparently uh, production crew ordered to save the sound, save the sound equipment because the sound equipment in the split second of someone's mind was more important than the lives of the actors on the <laughs> boat. So crew members were sunburnt, were disorientated, were really having a terrible time. And apparently okay, Spielberg- Okay, well then I'll walk back my statement about well worth it because I do have a thing <laughs> where I think that production productions that uh, provide sub, like safe working conditions and don't put their actors and their crew at risk should be awarded. I remember our Academy, like a whiteboard question was like, what award should be added to the Academy Awards? And I think safe production spaces should be an Academy Award. So, I would say maybe for the crew that worked on the film, I'm sorry that happened to you. Nothing is worth your sunburnt and your near misses and your drowning because yeah. At least if it had spaces should be a thing and mandatory, which I'm sure obviously there are a lot of rules, but people still skirt those rules. Oh yes, they do. And that's a really important point, Christine. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, and the biggest cause of delays, as I mentioned, were the mechanical sharks. Uh, there were three mechanical sharks that were developed, and they were all nicknamed Bruce after Spielberg's lawyer, Bruce Rammer. Uh, and for fans of Finding Nemo, the main shark in that film is named Bruce as a reference to Jaws. Oh, my God. That, I never knew that. That's a great detail. <laughs> At first, the studio actually wanted to train a real-life great white shark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then realize that that is a very dumb idea. It would be the first time in history it had happened. And he, I think in human history that a shark <laughs> had been trained yeah. to do something a person wanted. <laughs> uh, each shark cost about $250,000 in 1974. Astronomical amount of money. And each one served a special purpose. One shark was full-bodied and had its belly missing that they could tow around. So when you want to get full shots of the shark coming head on or top down. That was the shark that they used. And it was towed with a 300 foot cable. The second and third sharks were built, you know, one would move left to right. The other would be shot right to left because the opposite side would be exposed to the pneumatic hoses and 
other you know gizmos and gadgets that controlled these sharks. Now, this is up for debate, but some sources say the sharks were never tested in water before making the journey from California to Martha's Vineyard, while mm. other sources claim that they were tested in water in studio tanks, just not in salt water. So the salt water instantly fried pretty much all three sharks. And the skin that they had to wrap around the sharks swelled immensely because of the salt water. So lots of, you know, not a whole lot of forethought in some of these, you know, contraptions. So either way, when the pneumatic, you know, so when they were exposed to ocean waves, the pneumatic pumps and hoses exploded, skin swelled, and the creatures were generally considered a failure, delaying production by weeks. Originally scheduled to work 12-hour days on the ocean for what Spielberg says, about 30 days, 35 days, 30 days. Um, They would work four-hour days on a good day, four hours on a good day, and zero hours on the bad day. What was supposed to be a 55-day shoot turned into a grueling 104 day shoot with principal photography wrapping on October 6, 1974. So May 2nd to October 6th, day, you know, months filming Jaws. This also added millions of dollars to the already pricey feature. So imagine, you know, I like to imagine what the internet and Twitter would have said um, if all, you know, if all of that was around in 1974 on how much, you know, the media would have thought that Jaws was going to be a total and utter failure. On top of production troubles that would make any studio executive lose all their hair, there were some troubles with some of the cast as well. Legendary actor Robert Shaw was infamously terrible to work with on the set of Jaws, suffering from alcoholism and frequently binge drinking during filming. Roy Roy Scheider would say that when Robert was sober, he was a perfect gentleman, but give him one drink and he's, quote, a competitive son of a bitch. Apparently, Shaw and Dreyfus would have constant blowouts on set, which probably added to some of the character-appropriate tension between Quint and Hooper in the film. Shaw would frequently drink between takes, and one time, Shaw apparently exclaimed, I wish I could quit drinking. And so, Dreyfus, fed up, threw his drink overboard, stunning the entire crew. I love that story so much. Uh, Shaw would also apparently try to go to Canada as frequently as possible uh, due to tax evasion charges and gave up his entire salary and future earnings on Jaws to appease the IRS. Now, that's something that's interesting. The, I heard kind of the opposite. What I what I found that was that it was reportedly a clause in his uh, contract that if there were any issues with him overstaying his visa to make this film, then the the production would have to pay for it was what I heard. Once again, adding to the mythos of what actually happened with, you know, the production of Jaws, (laughs) but either way, Shaw had to surrender all of his earnings from Jaws. And so he made to his dying day, $0 off of this box office juggernaut. Wow. Now, there were some benefits. We talked a little bit about, you know, some benefits from the adversity that, you know, the production troubles that Jaws faced. Um, In the original shooting script, Spielberg wanted to use the shark in many scenes. I believe he even said dozens of scenes. Um, Even right in the beginning with the death of Chrissy Watkins, he wanted to see the shark actually go and attack this poor girl. However, due to the extremely dysfunctional nature of the mechanical sharks, Spielberg and the crew were forced to come up with creative solutions about how not to show the sharks, but to show 
the sharks. Um, the illusion that the sharks are there leading to the iconic yellow uh, barrels that they shoot into the shark that he drags around. Numerous other moments of suggesting that the shark is there without needing to use these incredibly unwieldy mechanical sharks. So, you know, through all this adversity, a lot of really wonderful creative decisions had to be made and rewriting the script on the fly in open water in order just to get something done film something so that way they can end this horrible production. I read that they um, used some footage of uh, some divers in Australia, like in a cave, like initially they weren't going to have, I don't think in the book there's a part where Dreyfus's character goes into a cage, but then they got some like footage from divers off the coast of Australia who went in a cage under the water, got attacked by a shark. The guy got out of the cage and swam to safety and then Spielberg was like oh okay we're gonna write that scene into the movie because I want to use that footage (laughs) can that be verified was this correct (laughs) I read something similar I believe to that effect I think what I had heard was that they actually hired a jockey like a horse jockey someone who was like four foot nine to go into the tank at the time that they were shooting the actual real shark like the live shark the stunt shark? I don't know how you, whatever you want to say. Did that but, shark get a union representation? <laughs> but the reason they did that was like because the shark that was in the story was so much bigger than a human that they needed a jockey to be in the cage mm. for proportion's sake. Uh, but yeah. Oh, so it wasn't even a diver, not even a professional diver. <laughs> oh my God. But I think those guys like, scenes... just like, uh, this isn't a horse at all. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> But I think those scenes were not filmed in Martha's Vineyard. I think they were filmed somewhere else. They did but, shoot, I think, B-roll in Australia of sharks underwater and sharks doing shark things. That makes sense. It looks pretty good. I mean, when the shark attacks and bites the cage, all that, I thought, felt even modern by today's standards uh, in the way that the shark approaches the cage later on once we see the shark in its entirety <laughs> definitely uh it da- the movie dates itself but like it's funny I think there's something it's kind of magical though it is about magical. you have this right. giant mechanical shark just chomping at this boat as as a human actor just slides into its mouth and but you so- have blood packets in its mouth and so slowly though that's what's wonderful is that the editing and the pace of the movie feels so um quick and kinetic and and energized until you have major scenes with this animatronic shark where it's moving so slowly and it's getting on the ship or on the back of the boat so like so slowly and it just it sort of deflates the momentum but in a kind of I would argue, Connor, magical way and again, kind of a comedic way as well. Well, and it's it's bought into the world. There's nothing yeah. in the script or nothing in the production that contradicts that. Like, I, I'm not sure if this, you know, in my theater training, if there's a show and this prop is is whatever you say it is, that is what it is. If in this world, if that's how this shark moves, if that's how it acts, then if that's how it's sold by the characters, then I'm fully invested and have no problem and, with it. And I and the shark looked great for the most part. And I think that the performances were such that they were just working it. Like from the very first uh, woman that's killed at the beginning to Quint that gets gruesomely if like 
disemboweled by the shark at the end, everyone is really selling it. I think I got to push back on the shark critiques a little bit. I mean, I think the brilliance of it, obviously, is the film's limitations. That's why this is a great movie, um, is that we don't see the shark up until like, uh, I don't know, like over halfway through the film. Instead, it's supplanted by other things that illustrate the shark's presence, whether that be an entire dock that has ripped, been ripped off by the strength of the shark and then chasing a guy as an illustration of the shark rather than seeing the shark, whether it's the barrels. Um, but then when we actually see the shark, like, I don't know, I've seen, I feel like I've seen a lot of movies that handle the presence of that kind of thing, literally like a shark, like whether it's your deep blue seas or your shark natos, where you get these CG sharks and it's overemphasized. Like there is this, like they almost like furrow their brows with like an evil nature or they have this grimace that is like overly characterized, but this is a fucking shark. Like it should look cold. It should look mechanical. That's the way the nature of that animal is. So in that sense, I think that though it was wise to restrict the amount of the shark that we see, I don't have a problem with any of the moments when I see the shark, even though I know it's a clumsy prop. But didn't you laugh? Maybe at all? because after the fact, I've seen so many over rendered versions. Not really, no. Actually, not really. <laughs> I mean, I was definitely in it 100%. But I, that shark, I love it. I love that shark. But just the movement. I mean, his tail, I think it's the contrast from the shots, the underwater shots, shots that were clearly filmed in Australia with real sharks. And then suddenly contrasting that with the the lumbering movement of this robot shark <laughs> sort of flopping itself slowly onto the slabs of the boat. Can I, can I quote a line that I think for me really seals like my total investment in the shark? Please so this do. is from Quince USS Indianapolis speech. You know, a thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. Those little black eyes roll over white and then, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming and the ocean turns red in spite of all the pounding and the hollering. They all come in and they rip you to pieces. A prophetic line for Quint. And I think that's, you know, he talks about his demise and I think that's what a moment that could be incredibly silly, I think is incredibly terrifying. And that line sets up why that death works so well. Nice impression too. Thank you. Well, I think this also connects to so Sam's internet to clue people in was giving uh, her trouble. Uh, That's horrible so, right now too. And so yeah, just internet all around not working in the in the universe. Uh, but she did leave uh, a thought that I think has a lot to do with sort of the characterization of the shark. Um, and she talks about the Jaws legacy, uh, like around public perception of sharks, and that it. One of the reasons that Shark Week exists is to do this is these are her words to draw attention to how incredible these creatures are and how the bad PR that they had for and shedding light on the bad PR they had for years. They do attack people, but we're there in their home and we look like food. Therefore, it happens. They're going to potentially bite to see if we're fish, which I think is a great point and connects to that question of like the characterization of the shark in the movie, sort of the demonizing and of this shark and the cult, you know, and Shaw's whole story of the, of the 
I mean, uh, the harrowing story of watching his men get eaten by sharks. Um, but as to whether like the ultimate depiction of a shark should be, yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I like how, how like, I think it I, find, I find the shark hilarious, but, <laughs> and, and by the end, I'm terrified of the shark at the beginning and then find it hilarious by the end. But, um, I think what, I think this ties into the theme of outsider versus insider being among the people. And then the shark is sort of this ultimate supernatural in a way outsider that everybody has to kind of rally towards. So I think the fact that it is kind of feels lifeless, it does not feel human, even if that's partially in the design of this clumsy prop, I think kind of in my mind kind of reinforces this theme of this is something other that our characters and the townspeople have to try to come together to defeat. Yeah, and even highlighted this is something that stood out for me for, for the first time watching this this go around was that I never really noticed before how for Quint, who is someone who is so outspoken about how he understands these animals and how he can he's the only person that can master the scenario. There's that moment when like it first like first the shark sinks three barrels which he's never seen a shark do. It's like incredible. Then his ship is starting to sink and then he's too far out and has to book it back to the shallows because he he destroyed his own radio. And watching him floor it back to the shore at the helm and whistling is kind of the first moment that we see him in the whole movie where it's clear that he's afraid. Like it's clear that he is this guy that really does understand these animals and really does understand what he's up against, but is for the first time realizing like, okay, I am out of my depth. This is way bigger than anything I've dealt with. It's a confidence shattering moment. And yeah. that it's set up numerous times. Oh, I've seen, I put two barrels in one and it's never, they all, there's so much dialogue about these yellow barrels. <laughs> and it's the like knots he that go on it them. at a certain point. Yeah. Right. It's, it's become something otherworldly, something that he is just, as you mentioned in the good nautical pun, out of his depth. <laughs> I also had a couple other nautical depths. Uh, yeah, nautical depths, other other puns in my notes of like, oh, this this shark that they caught was actually a red herring and blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I'll spare the audience that. But I do want to talk really quickly, though, uh, unless unless we're still talking uh, crucial production notes about Quint's death, because, oh, man. It haunts me to this day. Every time I watch it, it's just like, it's so visceral. There's like the kicking and the flailing. There's the screaming, the, his eyes bulging a little bit more every time the shark chomps down. It really like, it's, it's the moment when this silly looking shark does become appropriately the menace in the movie that it's, it's made out to be. And it's also really funny, going back to the beginning of the episode, a friend of mine, his dad loved this movie and watched it into the ground. And he taped it for his kids, including my friend. And they watched it over and over again. But he specifically, to protect his kids from that violence, left out the scene where Quint is eaten. So for years, my friend watched and loved Jaws and was just like, at the end, was like, I don't know. I guess Quint drowned. I don't, I don't know. I didn't see it happen. So the first time he watched the non VHS one that his dad made for him, he was like destroyed. <laughs> that Sometimes is you just incredible. gotta be shielded from the horror on, <laughs> until you're ready, you know? <laughs> How old was he when he finally learned what happened to Quint? He must've been like 17 or 18. That's amazing. But that's, that's after that's awesome. spending like, I don't know, like 10 years watching the movie. So in, in an edited version where Quint isn't eaten at all. <laughs> For Quint's death, what really got me this time 
was this is the last straw for Brody feeling powerless. Mm-hmm. Like I never really pick, picked up on that. And it's not a like, man, good for you Spielberg for not like swelling the music as he tries to reach out for Quint. Like it's all happens very fast, understated. And this is like, he's literally the last one left. He assumes that Hooper's dead because he got attacked in the shark cage and he's like, it's hiding under the debris or the coral reef. And so he just, as the ship, he's going down with the ship and he's going down fighting these air tanks that were set up before lodges it in the shark's mouth, but goes up and. Sorry, just quick thing about pacing. It happens fast, but it kind of doesn't happen fast. Like even when yeah. Quint is eaten, that's kind of slow. I think if effectively, I was sort of laughing about it earlier, but it's effective. As I had mentioned before, before sh- uh, sh- uh, the chief shoots the shark, you see that slow sinking of the ship. It's it's just that's mm-hmm. calm waters. There's not like a ripple in the water, and you just see the crow's nest just like slowly, diagonally uh, sinking into the water as he's on top with the uh, with the rifle. And you're like, yeah. And and the pace is is really effective and sort of amidst this calm ocean in the middle of a you know in the middle of the water, he's just gonna. Focus on his target and then get the shark. In a very implausible way to kill a shark. Yeah. <laughs> that was just, you know, that's when I have to check my suspension of disbelief and say, this is the world of the movie. You can shoot bullets through water. It was 1975. That's this, it's an exciting conclusion. You've well, got to be able to blow up the shark. Yeah, You've got to blow it up. <laughs> well, and the shot of the actual explosion is funny because you're all from. You're all you're looking from the chief's perspective at the shark for most of that buildup. And then when the shark actually explodes, it's from like a hundred yards away, like some <laughs> ridiculous length. And you're like, okay, uh, again, suspension of disbelief. The the explosion is awesome. You just see and and what a beautiful as the shark descends and this red plume mm-hmm. of blood. It reminded me of um a shot in the Suicide Squad, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, which I don't know if that was an homage. I don't know. It was just very similar looking shot that's in that movie as well. Water, blood, you know, it's very. And and to Sam's point, you know, it's like this this certainly shaped per, like pers- um, public's perception of sharks and instilled a lot of fear. And like to see a majestic marine creature just explode and cheer. <laughs> I mean, it's a, you know, for the movie, within the world of the movie, it's a fitting end. I would say within the world of preserving marine life, <laughs> it's sad and depressing. <laughs> um, yeah. Although it is interestingly related with like one of the more tender sounding moments in John Williams' score to illustrate the like, yes, it's finally over. The shark has exploded, which is, it's kind of nice. I, I, yeah. Okay. That score, I have some issues with. It's the famous lines are great, but there are some sort of ill-suited. I, I don't know. There's some. Yeah, when he's there. climbing, when he's climbing the pole, and in subtitles it said adventure music, and I was like, at yeah. the end, the the crow's nest. I was like, that's that's one moment where I was like, maybe something a little different than like something from the Goonies. That's what that oh. last moment reminded me When you me of. start with the Jaws theme and then all of a sudden you get into Avengers. I'm sorry, John Williams. Oh, what else you, are you, you going to do? come at me. I, <laughs> I don't know. It was... Like, is it going to be constant dread the whole time? That's not a No, no, movie. no. I just wanted something different, not the score. 
yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it just for me has the iconic jauntiness of a John Williams score in a Spielberg or Lucas property that is like up. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And in a way yeah. that is as far as composition, maybe him at his best. I think. And my only issue is just the Albeit choice of song, the choice of song at the very end as he's climbing the crow's nest. That was one. <laughs> I mean, I get it's like a hero triumphant mo- kind of moment before. That's like the one for me, the it's one critique so I have. It's like, it's so silly. But maybe something just a little more somber in that like building tension. I, I guess mean, it's not, interesting too, in the sense that when Spielberg was first, Spielberg first heard Williams' score set to the movie, he was like, are you, are you kidding? And it was like, wait, this isn't going to work. But Williams was like, no, 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 just feel it out. And, or what? I, I forget. I think Connie, you may have notes of that effect. I yeah. do. I do have a fun fact about that. Well, I think this is a great time to jump into kind of the last little bit I have about the movie and then about the production and then moving on into the legacy, which I'm so happy Sam touched on those notes of kind of the culture around sharks that happened after this movie. So we've talked a lot about these production troubles. Spielberg would later credit these troubles as a godsend making the picture more like, you know, an Alfred Hitchcock style thriller than another monster or action movie. And I think we all wholeheartedly agree. One reason that Jaws for me still works decades later is because it's a masterclass in building tension and supplying release. Our imagined idea of something is actually scarier than the reality. So many of Jaws's iconic moments come from the crew being forced to make creative decisions when their giant monsters wouldn't work. And in a movie about a shark that kills people, we actually see very little of the shark. So I just thought, yeah, I kind of wanted to just sum up my thoughts on the shark and the production troubles. Just add that like, yeah, very little shark, very little violence, but that's what the movie's known for, which is interesting because there is so much depth to the movie. Uh, and a lot of it born out of these production troubles that you've described. So yeah, kind of a, a happy accident on all fronts. I'm now looking at all the stills from when Quint gets eaten by the shark. And I, I know I said I laughed and I, I did, but that is horrifying. And I can imagine being an audience member in 1975 and being like, holy sh. <laughs> yeah, it's effective. It really is. And, and also, it was PG. Mm-hmm. What? The, like the rating systems, PG 13 <gasps> didn't exist yet. That was That's for Temple correct. of Doom. Wow. But when I Temple of Doom that. originally released, it did not have a PG 13 rating. It was only after Outcry. Um, it's initial release that they then went back and created PG-13. So there are some posters that have Temple of Doom as PG on it. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, wow, and this movie really- is definitely a hard PG-13 by today's standards, yeah. at least in terms of the violence that is, is depicted on screen, but also cleverly not an R-rated movie in that era because it does it strays away from showing you a lot of graphic violence, unless it's really necessary with Quint's death. Um, and just some side boob. Well, you know. Uh <laughs> And also just the end of the movie, man. I mean, I used to hate the water. I can't imagine why. End and then credits. How in 1975 do you not like rise from your seat and erupt in applause? I, I, it's it's got to have been, it must have been insane. I would love to hear your dad's thoughts if he wants to write in to us. Oh, I'm sure he'll talk about Jaws a lot <laughs> and openly <laughs> admit that he used to be a shark bait. So we're running a little long, which I, is to be expected with Jaws. So I just want to kind of do a recap of the legacy of Jaws. So Jaws is, as I mentioned, 
we all mentioned, one of the most important films in West, you know, in American cinematic history. It birthed the summer blockbuster, still around today, and inspired countless numbers of filmmakers and copycats over the ensuing decades. I mentioned that Jaws was slated for a Christmas time release in 1974, but due to production delays, pushed to June 20th, 1975. Back in the day, summer was the home of exploitation and just downright terrible movies. Studios didn't think that the public would want to do an indoor activity in the summer. And additionally, wide releases were not common. You know, usually films would start in one or two cities and build over the course of weeks and months. Uh, And so this was also a format reserved for these terrible movies. They can make a quick buck before audiences were wise to the bad reviews. However, producers at Universal saw the potential in releasing a great movie in the summer wide release format. Given how incredibly popular the novel was, Universal knew they had a hit on their hands. So they sent the novel's author, Jaws' producers, and editor, I should have mentioned her earlier, Verna Fields, movies incredibly well edited, um, around the country to hype up the movie. Three days prior to the film's release... Yes, Christine? Sorry, was was she uh, Spielberg's longtime editor? Did she work? I don't know that she worked with him a lot. She worked with Bergman. And then actually became, after this movie, was promoted to the head of editing, the editing department at Universal. So okay, maybe, I don't, I don't yeah. know. I think this was a huge stepping stone for them with an already very established career. But I as, mean, as the far editing as the of this with, movie is yeah. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. She worked on American Graffiti as well okay. with George Lucas. So they sent the you know producers and some of the production team around to hype up the film. Three days prior to the film's release, Universal unleashed a... $700,000 marketing blitz. This is 1972, so that's about, you know, I guess $2 million maybe today. Uh, marketing blitz that saturated the nation's airwaves, reaching 211 million homes. Jaws was wide released in 464 screens, which is absolutely puny by today's standards. On But that was wide released back in the day. Uh, on June 20th, 1975, and still managed to gross a worldwide total of $470 million when it was all said and done. In 1975, this was an unfathomable amount of money for a movie to make, and at the time, it was the highest grossing movie in the world, something Spielberg would have a habit of doing for years to come. So I got some fun facts as well. Some of these we've already mentioned, but some things of note that I wanted to talk about. So Spielberg, you know, talked about how cinematographer Bill Butler devised new equipment to facilitate the marine and underwater shooting, including a rig that kept the camera stable regardless of tide and sealed um, submersible camera submersible camera box. Spielberg also asked the art department to avoid red in both scenery and wardrobe so that the blood from the attacks would be the only red element and cause a bigger shock. Ooh. Several decades after the film's release, Lee Fierro, who played Mrs. Kittner, the mother of Alex Kittner, who died from the shark attack, walked into a seafood restaurant and noticed that on the menu, there was an Alex Kittner sandwich. She commented that she played his mother so many years ago. The owner of the restaurant ran out to meet her, and it was none other than Jeffrey Voorhees, who had played her son, Alex. They had not seen each other since the original movie shoot. At first, I thought that said Jason Borges, and I got very confused. <laughs> Jason's mother, and... <laughs> it was around Jersey, so... Yep. Uh, according to director Steven Spielberg, the prop arm looked too fake. Oh, we already talked about that. Uh, 
according to writer Carl Gottlieb, the line, you're going to need a bigger boat, was not scripted, but ad-libbed by Roy Scheider. One of the more famous um, ad-libs in movie history. Uh, and there's a funny story about this line. During test screenings, audiences, uh, during test screenings, audiences scream so violently when the shark surprises Brody as he's throwing chum into the ocean that the iconic line wasn't heard. So they edited the sequence to be much longer, adding 30 feet of film to the reel to just draw that out even longer so that line could be heard. Uh, when composer John Williams, Dave, you kind of already touched on this, or played the score for Steven Spielberg, Spielberg laughed and said, that's funny, John, really. But what did you really have in mind for the theme of Jaws? Spielberg later stated that without Williams' score, the movie would only have been half as successful, and according to Williams, it jump-started his career. The two-note theme of, of The Shark was inspired by Williams' desire to create a sound that felt brain-dead, animalistic. Also, he wanted a sound that could be played softly when the creature was far away and build into a crescendo the closer the shark got to its target. The last note I have is that the <laughs> most of the film, and I imagine this is referring to the waters, you know, the boat sequences, was shot handheld to countermand the ocean's swell. That so those cool. are facts production history, legacy. I really feel like we covered it all in uh, what turned out to be, unsurprisingly, a very long episode. <laughs> Any... And yet I feel like there's so much more, but yeah. I mean, oh, this man. is what one This is one that we could do a beat-by-beat beat discussion about and just be here all day, which maybe we'll do one day. I would really <laughs> love to do that. Any final thoughts, Dave and Christine, that you have on Jaws? Uh, if you impossibly have not seen it, you must see it. It's it's a joy. All of as Connor, you so so well laid out all of these technical details and all of these hiccups and hurdles that the film had to overcome. Truly accentuate its brilliance. Uh, it, it is a classic example of, you know, uh, necessity being the mother of innovation, and is, yeah. Uh, time tested one of one of the best uh kind of like man versus oh, character versus nature films ever made and i think um for good reason even i would say it even rivals jurassic park which i i guess i have seen more of but you know the, the two aren't all that different uh, in a lot of ways and i think um yeah both of them are, Spiel are spielberg at his height so the jurassic park always reminded me of jaws but if Spielberg had the technology that he had in his mind, like the imagination that he had in his mind could be brought to fruition with the technology of the day. And it's very clear he learned from the mistakes, the quote unquote mistakes of this movie in making that. And it took 20 years to kind of return to something kind of similar. One of my favorite lines in the entire movie is when Brody says, smile, you son of a bitch. And boom, plume of red blood sinks into the depths of the ocean. So I thought that'd be a nice line to leave our buttery listeners on. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dave and Christine and Sam and the ether of the internet for joining me today and talking about Jaws and the troubled production behind this legendary film. We'll be sure to check out other podcasts in the Movie John Podcast Network, especially Killer Bees, starring Tori and her partner Garrett. Really wonderful podcast, taking a look at uh, B-movie stars, Really wonderful show, as are all of the shows on the Movie John Podcast Network. And be sure to send us an email. Do you want us to do a five-hour deep dive into Jaws as our four-year special? 
Please send us emails. We love your emails and all your Butter. insightful comments. Butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can find us in all those places. Have a good whatever. Smile, you son of a bitch.